Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew. Paul uh, Leonard did ask me if I wanted to know the secret to being married for 70 years. And I said, sure. And he said, don't die. I guess that's the start. We ended last week's lesson at uh, the end of chapter 9 where Jesus told his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He knows that there's work to be done and he needs helpers to do it. It is fascinating to me because we know that God saves people. We know that God does it all. He can do it all himself. But for some reason, he chooses to allow us to participate in his mission to save the world. It is not us that save people. It is God. But God has called us to go out into the fields. So in chapter 10, we're going to start looking at going out into the fields. Chapter 10 is going to begin with a list of the apostles, the 12 that are chosen. We won't go into a lot of detail about their individual lives, just a little bit. There'll be more as they come up in the story. He then sends those 12 out on a specific mission. Go into the Jewish communities and preach that the kingdom is at hand. And he empowers them with the same power that he has to heal, to cast out demons, etc., He then gives a long discussion about what the response is going to be to their mission. And it isn't necessarily going to be good. Now it's interesting because while the mission that he gives to the apostles is specific to them, the discussion afterwards applies to all of us as we attempt to spread the gospel in the world today. Because the same responses that they got, we should expect as we share the gospel with those around us. So the first is very specific, and the rest of it is more general for all of us. And that's what we're going to see how far we can get into today. So, chapter 10. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast out Cast them out and heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. Just out of curiosity, if I were to ask you the names of the twelve apostles, how many of you think you could name all twelve? Good. You're ahead of me. (laughs) On any given day, I could probably give you ten of them. I'm sure I'd forget one, right? The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. No suspense here. He's writing this book after the resurrection. He knows what Judas does. He breaks them out into pairs, probably because he's going to send them out in pairs. You two go this way, you two go that way, you two go this way. He has empowered them with the same power that he has. He is preparing them for when he goes away. If you will, 
this is a practice session. Now, people have written books about each of these individual apostles. Um, I'm not sure we really have enough information to write a book about some of them. Some of them we know a whole lot about. Some of them we don't know much about. Jesus had a bunch of people following him. There were a lot of people who were tagging along because they liked the miracles, they liked getting fed, and they liked being with this very charismatic leader. But he didn't really trust all of them. So he called this 12 and said, I've got a special mission for you. These are the 12 apostles. And as I said, we're not going to go into a lengthy discussion of each one, but there is one item that I want to discuss because it ties into the end of the book of Matthew. Remember, Jesus is carted off to the crucifixion and all the disciples scatter. They've had enough of this. It isn't going to work. The whole mission has failed. Now, modern individuals would like us to believe that these 12 people, well, 11 people, we'll put Judas aside for a while, these 11 people, knowing that Jesus was really dead, went into a dark room and created Christianity. I think I've told you before, I was thumbing through a book years ago, The Hundred Most Influential People in History. Okay, Number one, according to this list, was Mohammed. Number two was Jesus. Number three was Peter. Peter probably should have been above Jesus because we know that Peter created Christianity. They just made it up because Jesus was dead. And the resurrection was just a figment of their imagination. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen to these 11 people. The first one's going to die for his faith. The second one's going to die for his faith. The third one is going to die for his faith. The fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, the eighth one, the ninth one, the tenth one, the eleventh one, John. They tried to kill him. It didn't work. So they exiled him to the island of Patmos because God still had something for him to do. Namely, write the book of Revelation. Now, here's the question. Lots of people have died for false beliefs. But when they died, they believed it was true. We're expected to believe that these 11 people, Judas killed himself, these 11 people knew that it was a fabrication and still died for their faith. That's just stupid. That's not going to happen. All it would have taken is one or two to say, uh, never mind, we just sat in a room and we made this up. And it would all have been over. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they had encountered Jesus and then they had encountered Jesus after the resurrection. They knew it was true. And that's who these disciples are. And we'll have more about them later. And of course, Judas who killed betrayed Jesus. The next thing we need to know is that this is a very diverse lot of people. Okay, This isn't, I'm going to go down to the local university, find the top 12 candidates, and bring them and put them to work. I mean, first off, he gets a group of, I almost said boatload, but it seemed to fit, a fisherman. (laughs) He gets a group of fishermen. Now, what are fishermen known for? 
besides lying about the size of the fish. (laughs) They're not known for being the best guys out there. So he grabs these fishermen. Last week, or week before last, he grabbed Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Everybody hated him. We have a zealot. Do you know who the zealots were? They wanted to get rid of the Romans by any and every means possible. They were the ones who would go out at night and find the stray Roman soldier who had had a little too much to drink and just knife him in the back. Those were the zealots. We would have a word for him today. They're terrorists of the time. And Jesus calls this group of people and he's going to put together a team that is going to change the world. And that's who these people are. You would not have known it if you looked at their resumes at this point in time. These are not the people you and I would have chosen. So, on to verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is the same message that John the Baptist started with. It is the same message that Jesus started with. Go to Israel and tell them the Messiah has come. That was the message. Now, in, later in the chapter, when he starts talking about the long-term consequences of all of this, he's going to talk about going to the Gentiles. That's how we know there's kind of a distinction here between the immediate task that he gave to the apostles and the long-term effects throughout history of how people respond to the gospel message. Go to the lost people of Israel. That's your message. Why? Why would he do that? Well, first off, as I said, this is a training mission for the disciples. I've been teaching you, now go out and show me what you can do. And he didn't want to push them too hard. He's like, go to the Jews who you are comfortable with and let's see what happens. Later, he's going to say, we're going to the whole world. But right now, just to the Jews. Just tell them the Messiah is here. They ought to respond to that. They don't, but they ought to. There's a long discussion about whether if the nation of Israel would have responded to Jesus as the Messiah, what would have become of the church? We're not even going to get into that discussion. Why? Because it's pure speculation. We know what ended up happening. They go to the Jews, and the Jews say, no, he's not our Messiah, unless he can drive the Romans out of the country. And he has no indication of wanting to do that. So go. Go among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It is interesting that he refers to them as lost sheep. Remember the picture from last week's? They are like sheep without a shepherd. More of that imagery in just a moment. Yes, Mm-hmm. And uh, you could do the worst job possible and, and try to explain the gospel to somebody. Huh? But uh, I know a pastor that said he was preaching the gospel and uh, 
God will use the people that God sends who are willing and faithful to go. That's the miracle of the whole thing. Yes. Oh yeah. All of these twelve apostles are Jews. Okay. Her observation is obviously some Jews accept him, and that's true. That's true. If you right. If you remember when uh, Esther used to be in our class, my nice elderly Jewish lady, anytime I hinted at something negative toward the Jews, she would go, "Wait a minute." It wasn't all the Jews. I said, you're right, Esther, it wasn't all the Jews. But you are correct. I know, but you're doing great. Obviously, these 12 disciples, and in case you don't know, Jesus was a Jew, okay? Let's just put that on the table. There was actually a brand of thought in certain parts of Europe in certain parts of time that Jesus wasn't really a Jew. He was a good Aryan. No. Let's just nip that in the bud, right? Jesus was a Jew. The twelve apostles were Jews. They were all Jews. And Jesus said, go to the lost sheep of Israel. They are lost. They are sheep. Without a shepherd's. Wait a minute. Didn't they have a boatload of shepherds? They had all the priests. They had all this, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were not leading the sheep. Go to them. Tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse leopards. Cast out demons. Now, I don't know about you, but if God told me, go heal all the sick people, I'd kind of panic. Why? Because I know that I can't do that. I do. I know that there's nothing in me. I can sit here and stare at you, and if you have a disease, that disease is just going to stare back at me. I can't do it. But what Jesus is saying, I am giving you the same power that I have to accomplish this task. Now, We have repeated this numerous times in here, so I'm just going to give us a snippet so we remind ourselves. The reason Jesus healed was to authenticate his position as the Messiah. The reason he empowered the disciples to heal, to authenticate their mission in the absence of the Scripture. We did not have the New Testament telling us what correct doctrine was, what false doctrine was, and if I came to town and I was an apostle or I was a false apostle and I started teaching to you, you might not know the difference. But if one of these two individuals turns around and raises somebody from the dead, you go, he's probably the true apostle. In the absence of the scripture, that was a necessary component. And that's why he is empowering them with these supernatural gifts. Now, just to make sure we understand, does God still still heal people today? Yes. 
Does God work in miraculous ways today? Yes. Does God work in ways that you and I cannot understand today? Yes. Do I believe that there's any member of this church who has the gift of healing and can walk over to Harris Hospital and walk down the aisles healing everybody he or she touches? No, I do not believe that. Okay? Because we're not authenticating. We have the Scripture to tell us who Jesus is, who God is, and what is expected of us. On we go. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse leopards, cast out demons. All the things that he had been done doing. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. What is he telling them? Don't go on this mission trying to get rich. Don't do it. Throughout all, all of human history, the religious and the money-making have blended together in bad ways at different times in different ways throughout all of human history. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to do that. You were freely given the gospel. When Jesus came up to Matthew two weeks ago and said, follow me, he didn't say, follow me and it'll cost you 20 bucks. He didn't do that. All he said was, here's the gospel, come on, I accept you, even though the Jewish community around you hates you because you are working for the Romans. You received everything free. Now go out and give it to everyone free. Now, later in the epistles, we have a discussion about those who are full-time pastors, shepherds, etc. And guess what? You're supposed to pay them a decent living. They're not supposed to be doing it for the money. But you're supposed to see that they have a living, that they can do what they need to do, that they can feed their family, that, that they can clothe their family, etc., etc., etc. There is an obligation. And we actually see this in this passage right here. Go to the town. Don't carry food with you because someone in the town is supposed to feed you. Why? Because you are worthy of the work that you've done. So, don't do it for the money. Do it for free because the gospel was given freely to you. But expect the people that you're ministering to to meet your basic needs. And he goes into lots of discussion, you know. Don't take an extra set of clothing. Don't take an extra pair of sandals. Just go. The first observation is this takes a lot of faith. I mean, it really does. There are probably some in here, at some point in their life, took the clothes on their back and went on a journey. I'm not one of those. I want an itinerary. I want a suitcase with all the important things that I might possibly, potentially need on my trip. I want to be prepared, right? And I wasn't even a very good Boy Scout. 
But Jesus says, go. Now, in one of the other uh, uh, Gospels, it does say, you know, if you have a staff, you can take it. All this says is don't go looking for one. Just take what you got and go. Why? Because he knows the human heart and he knows that there's always going to be this desire to make money at what you're doing. And that's fine. You have to survive. But you've got the gospel freely. You give the gospel freely. It's interesting. uh, Billy Graham passed away, what is it, a month ago? And they talk a lot about the Billy Graham rule in dealing with women and things like that. We forget that when he started out, he asks, what causes evangelists to get in trouble? One of them was women. That's why he would never enter a room first without somebody making sure it's okay. Because all he, he knew, all it would take is one, and it would all be over. But actually, the first thing was money. Money corrupted evangelists who were attracting people from all over the country. So Billy Graham set up a board of directors. He had no idea how much money the ministry was making. He got a paycheck. He got a paycheck. And that's all he knew about. The money was somebody else's concern. Why? Because Billy Graham, I don't know, maybe he was reading his Bible or something, (laughs) understood that money can have a corrupting effect on the gospel message. Oh, sure. I mean, as I said, you get over talking, his question is, does this mean we should or shouldn't support missionaries? If you go to, once again, the epistles, Paul says, these people are working for you full-time, take care of them. Either your local pastor or people that are going into mission fields. You know, if a pastor came to this church... He should have a reasonable expectation that this church would meet his needs. But if we're sending a missionary to Timbuktu, the reasonable expectation is that the church of Timbuktu is not going to support him. Because there may not be a church of Timbuktu. I don't know. I've never been there. I do know where it is, though. I do. It's in Central Africa, North North Central Africa. Yes. The evil woman? Be clear about the evil woman rule. It takes two to tango. Oh, yeah. Her observation is that many of the evangelists who get in trouble with women, it's certainly not the women's woman's fault. Okay? I can go looking for it, and you can go hunting for it, and we meet in the middle, and chaos reigns. Okay. Billy Graham's concern was that there would be a woman present, and nothing would happen, but the accusation would still be there. That's why he wanted a witness. Okay. No question about that. I, I, I am not accusing... Well, we won't, we won't even get into that. <laughs> I will agree with your statement. It takes two. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. 
But if it is not worthy, worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Remember, there were no holiday inns. None. You would go to a town and you needed a place to stay. And somebody would say, hey, come over to my house. I've got a spare room. You can stay there. And Jesus tells them, find a house of somebody that's worthy. What does it mean to be worthy in this context? Somebody who is open to the gospel message. Stay in their house. Don't go jumping house to house. Why? Ah, that is a better house over there. I didn't know that woman's here. They want me now. I think I'll go there. No. Go to a house. Stay in the house. Put your blessing on that house. If they are worthy, great. If you find out they reject the gospel as you're leaving, this is a good old Jewish, uh, I'm not sure I'd say curse, but just something along that lines. As you're leaving, you would knock the dust off your feet. You don't even want to be associated with their dirt. And leave. But here's the strange thing. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah themselves will be better off at the day of judgment than this town here that rejected you. How could that possibly be true? Sodom and Gomorrah got burnt to a crisp. How could it be worse? Let me tell you how it could be worse. The more you know, the more you're able to reject. And the more you reject, the guiltier you are. Sodom and Gomorrah knew this much. Because they had Lot, and I know, in my mind, that's not a very good example. Okay? We read the story over in Genesis, and Lot just doesn't really strike you as the most outstanding spiritual person in the world. Now you get over into the New Testament and it talks about Lot being a righteous man in the midst of a perverse generation. Okay? I guess it's all relative. They had Lot demonstrating to them what worship of God meant. These people, the Jewish community, has the revelation of the Messiah in their presence. They have these disciples, apostles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, curing leprosy, and if you reject that, it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. The more you know, the more you reject of what you know, the more guilty you are because you are without excuse. Remember the last line, the last paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus tells them all, you've heard all of this. Some of you are going to go do what I say to do, and you will be like those who built their foundation on rock. Some of you will hear this and not put a word of it into practice, and you are like those who build their house on the sand, and when the storms come, whoosh, off they go. 
Why are they more guilty? Because they were exposed to more of the truth. We always have this discussion. Always have this discussion. What about the poor guy in Africa who's never heard the gospel? Now, we've dealt with that before in here. You look at the book of Romans and it teaches us that everybody has enough of the revelation of God that they ought to worship the creator, but they choose not to. And that's a true statement. They are still guilty. But the scripture also does teach that the more you know, the more you reject, the more guilty you are. Guess what? Y'all are without excuse. Yes. We're not even going to go there. Her question is, are there degrees of judgment? And the answer is probably yes. Okay. What does that look like? I don't know. I do know that everything on the one side is really bad and everything on the good side is really good. And you don't want to be on the really bad side. Okay. I don't think it's Dante's Inferno where there are nine very defined levels of hell and different people at each level. I think Dante just really, really enjoyed putting certain people at certain levels. Okay? We won't even get started there. That's the specific mission that Jesus was sending the apostles out to do. Lost sheep of Israel, heal the sick, take care of this, do these miracles. If they listen to you, great. If they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. That's what he's called the apostles to do. Now he's going to tell them that from here to the end of time, here's what the response is going to be to that gospel message. Now, at this point... If I were a salesman trying to convince these 12 people that going on this mission would be a really great thing, I would tell them life's going to be great. You are going to change the world. People are going to treat you well. They're going to adore you. They're going to say nice things about you. Rah, rah, don't you want to go? The reality is they're going to change the world. And they're all going to die doing it. And you know what? That was okay. Here's what Jesus is going to tell them is going to happen to them. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Let's just start right there, okay? Over there down the street is a wolf convention. (laughs) Whatever that looks like. You know, all the big bad wolves get together and have a convention. Here is a sheep. And I'm going to say, sheep, go talk to the wolves. Bad idea. Bad idea. This is where he starts. He's going to tell you you're going to a world that is going to fight against you at every step of the way. Why do we seem surprised when this happens? Now, back to the earlier comment. Some are going to respond. The implication is they are going to find worthy people to accept them in their houses and who are going to respond to the gospel message. But there's also going to be lots of wolves. 
and you're a sheep. We had a discussion a couple of weeks ago about the fact that we are called sheep. And it isn't the best metaphor to use to talk about us. Okay? It just isn't. Sheep are not the most noble creatures in the universe. I mean, you have paintings of horses that are doing magnificent things and they're beautiful or big elephants and they're great and, and then they're sheep. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as dove. Man. We're up to four animals in one verse. We have sheep. We have wolves. We are the sheep. We are the sheep. We are going out into the midst of the wolves. And he says... We are to meet this interesting mix of two creatures. We are to be smart and cunning like the snake. Hmm. You go back to the Garden of Eden, and it says the serpent was more cunning than any creature around. What does it mean to be cunning? What does it mean to be smart in this context? While at the same time you're doing that, you are to be innocent as dove. I mean, you look at a dove, the dove comes and sits on my back porch to eat out of my bird feeder, and it's, it's as harmless as you can get, right? How many of you have, of you have ever heard of somebody being killed by dove? You know, you're walking down the street, a flock of doves descend upon you and peck you to death. It's never happened. Dove are the picture of innocence. We are to be dove-like, but we're also supposed to be smart in what we do. How, How do we mix these two? The truth of the matter is we mix them very poorly a lot of times. The world has a way of doing things. The world has a way of being, well, just pragmatic. That's what they'll say it is. got to do what you got to do in order to get what you want to get. And Jesus is saying no. There are certain things that you as a believer are not allowed to do. You ready for this? You are not allowed to hate your enemies. But what if they're of the other political party? Don't you know how rotten they are? You are not allowed to hate them. You are not allowed to lie. You just can't. Well, I would never tell a lie as my nose starts growing longer. (laughs) As a believer, we are to be innocent of the sin that permeates this world. Are we, well, do we stop sinning? No, we keep sinning, but we repent and we stop it. There are ways to win people to the gospel that involve lies, misrepresentations, 
Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. I could stand up and preach that. It sounds really, really good. But as I say in here repeatedly, we're all old enough to know that the problems are still there. Now, he's going to talk in a moment. I'm going to be with you, and you're going to win in the end. But he isn't promising any rose garden between here and there. We are to be smart, though. There are people that we share the gospel with, and there are people that we acknowledge it's just casting our pearls before swine, and we just back off. We've talked in here before. If I know the Roman soldier is coming through that door to arrest me for being a Christian, I have the right to run out that door and get away. I can. I can do that morally. Now, if the Roman soldier catches me and says, deny Christ or die, I can't deny Christ. But I can be smart and run away. Now, if God comes along and says, the Roman emperor needs to hear the message, go talk to him, then guess what? I'm going to go talk to the Roman emperor. We're to be smart, but we're to be innocent. We are not supposed to participate in the evil of this world thinking that doing so will spread the gospel faster, better, more efficiently. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. Where were we? Beware of men. We could just stop right there. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in the synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you, notice it does not say if they do, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are going to speak or what you are going to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking throughout you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and his father his, and his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for my, all my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Beware of people. Now, my understanding of that, beware of people. Don't hang around people. Avoid people. Go to the desert and get away from people because people are going to hurt you and they're going to do bad things. Isn't that what this is saying? No. What it's saying is don't be surprised when people do bad things. You're going to share the gospel with somebody. And when you do that, you would love to think that every one of them is, go, is going to go, thank you, I've been waiting to hear that. Let's pray the sinner's prayer. Let's accept Jesus Christ. Let's do great things. And you go, woohoo, life is good. And guess what? That does happen. That does happen. But what also happens are people say, no, 
and not just no, but heck no, and not just heck no, but I'm going to stop you from doing what you're doing. You are destroying our society. Let's talk about Jesus and his disciples at this point in history. We are not going to extrapolate of how this relates to today's current environment because it would be too interesting. But let's talk about Jesus. Jesus gets arrested. Jesus gets dragged before the priest. He gets dragged before the governor. And all this trial goes on and on. We'll have a long discussion about that, maybe in November. And what does Caiaphas say? Oh, shoot. This guy is preaching revolution. He's going to get the Romans upset at us. If the Romans get upset at us, they're going to take away our positions. Bad things are going to happen. They're going to mess up our society. It is better for this guy to just disappear than for us to have to deal with what he's teaching. So they got rid of him. Paul goes on a missionary journey. There's in a town. He preaches. They get rid of all the idols. The people who make the idols, their livelihood just disappeared. They protest. They drag him into prison. They say, we're going to flog you, Paul. We're going to flog you. We're going to let you go. And that means you're not going to preach again, right? No. It means I'm going to go to the next town and preach the gospel. Beware of people because people are not going to respond the way you want them to do at all times. And if you read the Bible, well, from this point on, or you can go back to the Old Testament and do that too. If you read it from this point on, you see people responding to the gospel and you see people rejecting to the gospel and trying to destroy the gospel in the name of something. We would write this down as a work of the devil. We would work it write it down as a consequence of sin. It is all those things. We had a brief discussion the other day about, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, about why don't people, why don't, why doesn't everybody just respond to the gospel? I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. You've got problems in your life. I'm going to, I'm, you know, I'm walking down the street. I grab some random stranger I say, you have problems in your life. You do have problems in your life because you're just like me. We all have problems in your life. Let me tell you that your problem is caused by the guilt because of your sin and your rejection of God. And all you have to do is accept the finished work of Jesus Christ. And all that will be taken care of. Doesn't that sound great? And they look at you and go, who the heck? are you to tell me that I've done something wrong? Well, don't you think you've done something wrong? Well, maybe, but I don't want you telling me about it. I don't want to believe in a God who's going to condemn me. I don't want to believe in a God who's going to judge me. I don't want to, and I don't want you either. Go away. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. When this happens, there's a discussion. It'll be in next week's lesson in a couple of verses. If this is the way they treat the master, you shouldn't be shocked if they treat you the same way. Now, we're out of time. We didn't finish this paragraph. 
We'll pick it up next week. But a reminder. No, not a reminder. An observation that you don't want to hear. Jesus is telling us this so we will not be surprised when we are persecuted for sharing the gospel. What does it mean if we're not being persecuted? You don't want to know the answer to that question, right? Either A, we're not doing a very good job of sharing the gospel, okay, and looking at my own life, that probably is true to a certain degree. I do believe that in God's providence, he has allowed us to live in a nation that at least was formed on Christian principles. It may not be true, and it may be... We're not going to talk about politics, remember? We may have been fortunate, but we may not be fortunate forever. The observation is this. Do not be surprised and share the gospel anyway. We didn't make it to the end of this paragraph, but I'm going to tell you a piece of it just to leave you with it so you'll have an encouraging word. When the persecution comes, you're going to sit there going, oh no, what am I going to say? They're going to drag me in front of the governor who's going to accuse me of doing something wrong. What do I tell them? And you'll sit there and you'll begin to think, my life depends on me saying the right words at the right time. And Jesus says, go ahead and sleep well. Don't worry about any of that. Because when you appear before the governor, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what to say. That's the confidence we have. Now, does that mean the governor is going to change his mind and repent? That could happen. We have examples in the scripture where that does happen. Does it mean he's going to kill you anyway? That could happen too. Stephen in the book of Acts. He delivers the most brilliant lecture to the Jewish community, taking the whole history of Israel, wrapping it together with the gospel message, and he presents it, and they stone him to death. And guess what? The gospel message spreads to the entire world. And guess what? He changed the world. The twelve apostles mentioned at the beginning of the chapter setting aside Judas, are going to change the world. And every one of them is going to die doing it. And guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Because their loyalty was not to this earth, but the kingdom of heaven. And that was okay with them. Beware of men. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. They treated Jesus this way. They're going to treat you this way. We'll continue this discussion next week. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the strength that you give us in the time of need. I pray, Lord, that we would be bold, that we would go to the lost sheep with your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.